We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark's fourth chapter in his gospel. As you're turning there, let me remind you a little bit about the gospel of Mark. This is, in some senses, the gospel of Peter. Mark, we know, spent a significant amount of time with Peter and would have gotten and was too young to have been one of the original disciples. But he became a believer, was discipled by Peter after having a catastrophic failure with Paul. Peter, who understood failure as much as anyone, picks him up, disciples him. He learned the life of Jesus from Peter. And now he tells us through his own pen, his vision of the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter four brings us to a significant change in the gospel. Jesus has been teaching and performing miracles, moving around the north shore of the lake that is called Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And now he's changed to teaching in metaphors, in parables, in riddles. We've broken this down over the last five weeks, including today. And I think it's important to hear the whole thing, all 20 verses in one shot. And then we'll turn our attention to the fourth of these four soils. Mark chapter four, beginning in verse one. He began to teach again by the sea, the lake, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. You remember the picture I showed you. It's a little cove on the north shore of, of Lake Galilee that is a perfect amphitheater. He gets in a boat, backs up into the cove. People were surrounding him. Verse two, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. The birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil and after the sun had risen, it was scorched because it had no root and it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell to the good soil and as they grew up, they increased and they yielded a crop of 30 and 60 and 100 fold. He was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you, it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? Huh. How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones who are beside the road where this word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. 
In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns and these are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Remember, Jesus is now on the north shore of Galilee Lake. He's been traveling village to village, place to place, all along that northern western and eastern shore. He's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been casting out demons, he's been performing miracles. And obviously he draws a large crowd. No one had ever heard a rabbi teach like he taught. He taught with authority that came out of what he said and how he said it. His understanding of the Old Testament, the scriptures, pervaded everything he said and he gave explanation and application to what the word of God said. No one had ever seen a man who could command demons and they would obey. Oh, they had seen demon possession. We'll see when we get into chapter five. A man who they all feared, who was up in the caves, frightening anyone who would come by. And he could cast these demons out with a mere word and his own bidding. No one had ever witnessed healing like Jesus healed. No one on television who says they're a faith healer heals like that now. He healed instantaneously. He cured leprosy. He instantly corrected physical deformations. He gave blind men their sight, opened the ears of the deaf. And as we'll discover at the end of the next chapter, even at the end of this chapter, rather, even nature itself obeys Jesus as if it has a personality. He was at the same time compassionate, caring, also blisteringly confrontive. The religious leaders in the, in the community of faith, instead of recognizing who he was, were provoked to jealousy and began to plot to murder him. The phenomenon and reputation of Jesus was spreading and had gotten all the way to the leaders of the Jewish faith on the Temple Mount. They sent the elite from Jerusalem, their scholars, their theologians, their scribes, to observe Jesus, put him in his place, shame him so the attention would go back to them and away from this Nazarene healer but they were no match for Jesus, had no answer for his authority and could not deny nor compete with his power in the miraculous realm. 
Everywhere Jesus went, he encountered suffocating crowds. And you can see why. If you knew a man who could heal any disease, correct any deformity, and as we'll see in the coming chapters, create all the food you ever needed, I would vote for that guy for king. I would want to abscond with him and put him on the throne. That's exactly what they were doing. He was attracting crowds who were attracted to him for all that he could provide, but only a few were attracted to him for who he was. Some were curious, some were indifferent, some desperate. In the next chapter, we'll see a desperate situation. Some were offended. Some opposed him and began to plot to kill him. And in this context, when we come to Mark 4, Jesus, as I said, changes his, what we call pedagogy, his, his teaching corpus, the way he taught. He was teaching very plainly, and now he changes to teach in parables so that only those with ears to hear would understand. And the crowds would largely dismiss what he was saying, and it would go right over their heads. A parable. Para beside Balo throw, to throw something alongside. It's an illustration. It's a, it's a riddle. It's an explanation. Four soils. There's an impenetrable soil that is by the road. Seed, this um, sower is casting seed with his hand. Far less accurate than the machines we have today. He would cast it and it would land indiscriminately on wherever it was thrown. Some landed on the paths between fields. And that path represented an indifferent heart. These were people who hear the gospel, were and are people who hear the gospel and just don't care. They yawn, they're, they're resistant. The seed of the truth that is the word of God, the gospel, the, the message of God doesn't penetrate the hardness of their heart. Secondly, we looked at the shallow soil, which is an impulsive heart. These were, there were little places that had dirt and underneath the dirt was rock. There wasn't very much depth. These seeds would take quick root, shoot up very quickly, but because they had no root, would quickly fall away. That's indicative of someone who had an impulsive heart to the gospel. They hear, that sounds great, they believe, but when persecution comes and the cost of discipleship begins to bear on them, they back away and say, this isn't for me. Last week, we looked at the thorny soil, which is a preoccupied heart. Jesus said, there are some in whom the gospel is planted who seem to believe, they, they, they affirm the truthfulness, they begin to live in accordance with gospel truth, they repent of certain sins, they follow certain righteous standards. But after a time, their desire for the things of the world, wealth and desires for accumulating things and money preoccupies their heart and they fall away. And part of what I, uh, we did last week is I, I gave you a little bit of a study on worry, which can drive people away, and money. I understand that the, this is a, an unredeemed soul, soul in this soil. But the reason we did that little study is if, if it's at all possible that someone with a preoccupied heart is in here, to hear the truth should rescue us from being that kind of soil. Which brings us to today, the good soil. The good soil. Now remember, Mark says that this parable is P 
paradigmatic. It's the first domino. If you don't get this parable, you're not gonna get any of the rest. It's an anatomy of faith and unbelief. It, it tells who's the insiders and the outsiders to the kingdom. It defines the parameters of the kingdom of God as those who worship and follow the king. Verse 10, his followers get him alone. This is sometime later. The crowds disperse and they say, hey, what uh, did that mean? And so he explains it to them. He says, I wasn't talking about literal seeds being sown. Seed is the message of God. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the word, the message of God. And these soils represent the different hearts. Now, it's very significant, as we said over and over in Mark chapter four, verses 11 and 12, that Jesus references the, the, the commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six. We know Isaiah six, the first part really well. Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, uh, God says, who can I send to preach to the nation, to these people? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And we kind of finish the chapter and finish the familiarity with the chapter at least, but it keeps going. And basically he says, you're gonna go, Isaiah, and preach to people who will hear you with their physical ear, but will not hear what you really mean. They will see what you're saying, but they won't get it in their heart. They won't understand. They won't apply it to their own lives. And he ends that chapter in verse 13 by saying, basically one-tenth of the people are gonna hear you. One-tenth. He's not making some hard and fast one out of 10, 10 out of 100. He's saying a very small percentage are gonna hear you. That's the context and that's the quotation that Jesus lifts from Isaiah 6, brings into this passage and says, there are three soils that will be unresponsive to the gospel long-term. Only one, one-fourth will be responsive. What is the Lord doing? By looking at Isaiah, by teaching what he taught, he is saying exactly what Matthew chapter seven says. Many will find the road to destruction. It's a broad road. Many there will be that find it. Only few will actually truly understand and follow he gets all the way to the end of that passage and says, some will come all the way to the judgment, all the way to the judgment, self-deceived, and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I, I never knew you. He's equipping his disciples in this commissioning to know what they were getting into. They were about to be the, the sowers, and he was saying, expect these soils to be present in the ears of those that you tell the gospel to. Be ready. In other words, don't be discouraged if a small percentage respond. But be very encouraged in verse 20. When the seed lands in good soil. Let's just look at verse 20 and draw attention to it. By the way, the, there's less space given in the explanation and in the, uh, of, these, of this parable to the good soil than the other three. That's instructive. It's very simple. It's actually really, really a simple uh, parable, uh, application of this parable, the final soil to understand. Verse 20, those are the ones, this is the one that lands on the good soil, on whom seed was sown in productive, rich, fertile soil. They hear the word, accept the word, 
and bear different levels of fruit from the word. Finding an outline in this verse is really easy because Jesus makes it simple. He says there are three, he uses three verbs to describe the condition of a responsive heart. They hear it, accept it, and bear fruit. And that will be really close to our outline. Three characteristics of those with a responsive heart to the gospel. Three characteristics of those with a responsive heart to the gospel. The first characteristic is in verse 20, obviously, the first phrase. They hear the word. They hear the word. Those are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil and they hear the word. After describing three unproductive soils, Jesus now speaks to the seed that's planted in good soil that finally bears fruit and is productive. This soil is not hard, it's not shallow, and it's not preoccupied. There are no thorns to crowd out its productivity. Notice also here in verse 20 that the Lord explains this part of the parable and the subject changes from dirt to people. He says, these are the ones clearing up that these are, these are hearts, these are people who would hear the gospel and how they would respond. First thing to notice is that they hear the gospel. They hear it. They hear the word. The accent of the whole parable is let those who have ears to hear do what? Hear. He's not just talking about acoustic transmission from your hearing nerve, your acoustic nerve, down into your brain. In fact, just the opposite. He says they do hear what you say, but they don't understand what it means. These people, though, this last soil does understand. They hear, get this, because they want to. Notice these, these, these few followers along with the 12. There's more than just 12 here, Mark notes. They, follow, they, they, they catch Jesus after the crowd's dispersed. And they, they get him alone. They say, what, what, is this, what does this mean? They have a desire. They have an interest. They follow up with the Savior. And God opens their ears opens their eyes. Make no mistake, no one will have ears to hear whom God does not open their hearing nor eyes to see that God doesn't rip scales from them. John 6, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 65, he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father? 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we are constantly thankful to God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, there's a conundrum that people come to when they see that only God can open the eyes, only God can open the ears. We're called to have eyes that see and ears that hear, but only God will do that. Then what part do I play? It's simple. You desire it. No one is asked to see if God is drawing them. They're told to desire and follow up. And if that's your heart, you would only do that if the work 
of the Lord was apparent in your believing and in your heart. They actually hear the word. They have a desire to want to know what it means, which leads secondly to accepting the word. They hear the word. A second characteristic is they accept it. It's an interesting term, an interesting phrase. What does it mean to accept the seed, accept the word there in verse 20? Well, I think that the best way to understand this is to look at Jesus' half-brother's writing. Now, we were uh, talking with some friends yesterday and asked, what is the first book of the New Testament written? And it was the, the epistle of James. Look over at James chapter one for a moment. <laughs> I can never turn to James without re- remembering and recognizing that James is the half-brother of Jesus who didn't believe during Jesus' life. Mark will tell us that later. He had six brothers and sisters. He didn't believe until after the resurrection. And then James becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He writes this letter to the 12 tribes who are believing Jews who've been dispersed all over the ancient Near East, running literally for their lives because of their belief in the gospel. And just, I think it's interesting to note in James 1, this is how he introduces himself. James, the guy who grew up with Jesus and who knows him better than anyone, the guy you should all look up to. Is that what he says? Quite the opposite. Your translation may say a bondservant. That's not the best translation of this word. This is what James says. James, a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think James understood the parable of the soil, which no doubt had been retold and retold and people had began, begun, the, the followers of Christ, 12 especially, had begun to see the, the fruit of that? Look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, listen to this, in humility, receive the word, what's the next phrase say, next word? Planted, implanted. Which is able to save your souls. It's the same language of the parable. Let the word, the message of God contained in the scriptures, pointing to the gospel, accenting the Lord Jesus Christ, let that be planted in your soul. Why? Because it will save your soul. Do you see the connection? Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to have it implanted and have it accepted into your life? Well, he explains that, fortunately. So the half-brother of our Lord says, prove yourself doers of the message, doers of the word, and not merely hearers, this is important, who lie to themselves, who delude themselves. That's pointing, I think, back to the first three soils. Oh, the first soil may not care, but the second two actually delude themselves to think that they are connected when they're not. If anyone is a hearer of the word, do you hear that language right out of Mark 4 or out of the parable? If anyone is a hearer of the word and not an applier, not a doer, 
He's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect instruction law, the law of liberty, and lives in it, abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual applier or doer of the word, this man will be blessed in what he does. That language is so similar to the language here in Mark 4. It's hard to imagine James did not have this in mind. Receive the word planted in the soil of your heart. Accept it. How do we know that the word has been accepted? Because you're a doer. It changes you. You, you respond because it lives in your heart. You change. To accept the word implanted is to become a doer and not merely a hearer. It's to have ears that hear. It's to have a heart that believes. It's to have a will that wants to obey and that shows, as we'll see next, fruit of obedience. You're a doer if you accept it, not just a hearer. Jesus said on that fateful night of his betrayal, in John 14, to the disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. Does anyone obey perfectly? No. First John 2 says, if we say that we have no sin, we make God a liar. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse us of not some, but all unrighteousness. He knows we will sin. The good soil the productive heart, the responsive heart is sensitive to sin, recognizes it, hates it, and wants to repent of it. Just a little aside, this is, this is front and center, the, the lordship debate revisited. Maybe you remember that in the late 80s. They accept it. They, it's implanted and it causes us to be doers, not just hearers, not just professors of faith, but possessors that makes a difference in our lives. He's telling the disciples, you're gonna tell some and they're not gonna care. You're gonna tell some and they're gonna care for a while. You're gonna tell others they're gonna care for a little while longer and the things of the world are gonna distract them, the worries of the world, the, the uh, temptations of the world are gonna pull them away from Christ People will be persecuted and walk away. But listen, men, some people will hear and accept. They will take it into productive hearts. And just anecdotally, can I just tell you in my own witnessing experience in the past, I have rarely been correct in assessing what a person's heart is in the beginning. Rarely. I, I, I will never forget one of the most awkward evangelistic exchanges I ever had. It was on an airplane. And, you know, you're sitting on an airplane, you're sitting by someone and, you know, you feel like, well, uh, I, I probably should tell them about Jesus. And I'm nervous. And how do I get in this conversation? And uh, by the way, that's not the devil telling you that. And it's certainly not your flesh. I think that's the Lord's prompting. And so I was, 
I wanted, this is embarrassing. I almost wanted to just kind of do my duty and then read my book. I'm going to tell this guy the gospel and he's going to reject it. And then I can read. I've, done, I've been faithful. It's a terrible heart. So I asked the guy, I said, um, are you a believer? And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, do you believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? He said, someone else was telling me about that. Can I hear more about that? And my next phrase was, uh, uh, what do I do now? I, I'm supposed to know the answer to this question. I froze up. I was not expecting him to say, tell me about the gospel. So I said, could you give me a minute? No, I, I was able to pull some thoughts together. It was so encouraging. I was able to give him the, the name of a pastor in the, uh, the, we were connecting in a connecting city of, uh, that I knew in that city. Just super encouraging. Jesus is preparing us to say, it's gonna be hard, but be ready for someone to say, I'm interested and accept it. You know, one of the motivations I think are behind our Lord and Mark including this, I think he fully understood how you and I feel that when we meet one or two or three of those first three soils, we become discouraged and just are tempted to give up. He says, keep casting seed, keep sowing seed because some of that seed will find fertile hearts and receptive minds. What does a responsive heart look like? Here's the word, here's the message, here's the gospel. Accepts it, believes that it's true. And thirdly, they bear fruit. They hear the word, they accept the word, and they bear fruit. Look back at verse eight. Let's look at the original um, telling of this parable. Other seeds fell into the good soil and they grew up and increased. That's two important verbs. They grew up and increased. They yielded a, pro, a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. Did a little research. The average yield on crops in the ancient Near East of the first century is estimated to, been, uh, to have been about, ready? Eight, eight fold. A tenfold crop was considered a bumper crop, a massive crop. Jesus' numbers in this parable would have been immediately shocking to the hearers. They would have arrested their attention. These figures were astronomical. They present yields of 3,000%, 6,000%, and 10,000%. The point he's making is not to be specific about these numbers. It's the result of the seed being supernatural, dramatic, evident, and demonstrable in a responsive heart. It's obvious. Interestingly, Matthew says them in reverse order, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, 
30-fold. I don't think he's talking about, you know, this part of the vineyard has a little bitty grape on one part of the vine and that's their fruit and this other one is productive and, and, and has bush after bush after bush of productive crops. No. I think he's saying some will produce more than others, but all produce an astronomical response. Even the slowest 30 yield fruit, 30 fold fruit would have been, 30 fold yield rather, would have represented 3,000%. They'd never seen anything like this in a field. Let me say it another way. Jesus Christ is far too powerful, way too wonderful, too influential, far too authoritative to come into a person's life through believing the gospel and there not be a massive, noticeable, evident, demonstrable, and sustained transformation that occurs. The gospel changes a person. It doesn't just add something to their life, it changes their life. We say it all the time, Jesus is not a part of a Christian's life, he's the point of a Christian's life. And don't get too tripped up by the numbers and their differences. Remember, the Lord is equipping the disciples for ministry, preparing them not to be too surprised when there are more unbelievers than believers and not to be surprised when there are are different levels of fruitfulness in believers. Now this idea of bearing fruit as a believer, of, of being productive was very pervasive, extremely evident in Jesus', te- Jesus teaching. One of the last lessons that he taught the disciples on the night of his betrayal and arrest, hours before the cross, is in John 15. Just flip over to John 15 for a moment. I think this is important to see. Same Lord teaching the same lesson from a different angle and the language ought to to be very familiar to you. John chapter 15, I am the true vine, verse one. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit God takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, we looked at this several years ago when we were going through this this chapter, but let me just stop right here to say there there are two different um, uh, angles that he's addressing. First, if the branch doesn't bear fruit, he cuts it off. We'll see in a minute, he throws it in a fire. The branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it. Cuts off those, those sucker branches that take uh, um, nutrients away from the, the main part of the branch. He prunes it so that it can be more productive. And I think he's quickly telling the disciples, I'm going to prune you. I'm gonna be working on your heart so that you will produce more fruit. Verse three, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. There's that word again, the seed. Abide, live in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in me, so neither can you unless you, men, uh, unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, so many people say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Does that mean you can't? Is he talking about brushing your teeth or? No, no he's saying apart from bearing fruit in a, an obedient fashion, apart from doing what's right before me and obeying me and honoring me, you can't do that without me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Several years ago, I was reading a commentary of someone who was very against the idea that Jesus must be Lord before he's your savior. I was reading the commentary on this and basically it says, no, it's, it's taking those, those little uh, sucker branches off and that's the pruning and it's thrown in the fire and, and that's so that they can bear fruit. Can you read that with me again? If anyone, there's the person, does not abide in me, look at the pronoun, he, the person, is thrown away as a branch dries up, they gather them, cast them into the fire and they are burned. This is not talking about unproductive believers. This is talking about unbelievers who prove themselves to be that way because they bear no fruit as a Christian. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus would teach over and over and over that genuine believers bear fruit. So if you're... Smart, and I know you must be looking at this passage, your question is, what does it mean then to bear fruit? I read, I don't know, a dozen commentaries on this. Some said it means that you bear fruit because that's evangelism and, and that's winning people to Christ. That could be a part of it. Others said it's how many disciples you have and how many people you're pouring into. That, that, that could be part of it as well. I think bearing fruit is very simply obeying Jesus, obeying the word. What does fruit look like? Well, when Paul would describe the fruit of a relationship with God, he would say there's fruit of walking with the spirit of God. And this is how he described the fruit that a believer is to produce. Now, we often look at the fruit of the Spirit backwards. We think, here are nine things. I'm gonna pursue those that will make me godly. It's just the opposite. He says, if you're walking with the Spirit, these things are the consequences. This is the fruit that comes from the gospel being evident and treasured in your heart. Love, a total lack of self-concern. Joy, a sweet attitude in response to God's sovereignty. Peace, an absence of fear and anxiety. Patience, the ability to endure trials and offenses. Kindness, a compassionate interaction with others, typically who are not kind in return. Goodness, doing beneficial things for others. Faithfulness, being trustworthy to follow through on what we are committed. Gentleness, being humble in mind and in action, not self-promoting. And then lastly, he says, self-control and things like these. Mastery over our own desires, submitting our impulses, our lusts, and our longings to Christ's lordship above our own. 
That's what it means to bear fruit as a believer. So let's back up again. What is Jesus doing in this parable? I think he's doing two fundamental things that are important for us to recognize. First, he's preparing the seed casters. He's preparing the sowers who these followers would become. He's letting them know what the response is going to look like. Just as God told Isaiah what to expect, it wouldn't be ultimate revival. He was telling them, don't be surprised if few follow. And don't be surprised when people do follow. But I think also he's holding this up as we've been talking about for now five weeks as a mirror to say, which soil are you? Where do you land in these soils? Could it be that you're indifferent? Church is something on Sunday. It's a nice group of people. Just kind of plug in and out, but you don't really care between Sunday night and Sunday morning, the following week. Did you find a time when you responded to the Lord really fast? Persecution came, a cost for discipleship was enacted and you withdrew. Is your heart preoccupied with things other than Christ? It's okay to have things. Money is not the problem. It's the love of money. It's the cares of the world. It's other things that crowd in and elbow the priority of Jesus out of first place and preeminence in our thinking and our decisions and our heart. And Jesus just becomes a sideshow in our minds, not the Lord of who we are. Or do you have a responsive heart? Soft about your sin. Oh, you haven't found sinlessness, but you sure see more and more sin that makes you more and more aggravated because you hate it. Do you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control happening because you're walking with the Lord, reading his word, it's implanted in your heart and you become a doer not just a hearer. To demonstrate that a heart is productive and responsive means that you care. You care about your spiritual walk and your relationship with Christ. And you care about it a lot and you care about it often. Remember, James says it's implanted. You receive the word that's implanted. The roots have taken over your affections. The roots have taken over your desires. The roots have taken over your dispositions and your leanings and your, your, um, your longings. It changes you. I think we're learning and we'll see it more and more throughout Mark. Remember, two main themes in Mark Christology, who Jesus is, discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. The more we're gonna study, Mark, you're going to see that true Christianity is all in, not part in. It controls, are you ready for this? Every dimension of your life 
as God's word regulates our lives. No one has ever done that perfectly, save Jesus. No one ever will, but it's about progress and growth, not about final sanctification as some Wesleyans teach where you can get it all done here. No, no, no. It's moving more into being a doer than just a hearer. It's caring about your read and wanting to apply it. It's looking for the implications of what we know about the gospel, the implications of what we know about the truth, canonizing scripture and seeing that it has impact on who we are and what we do and how we relate and what we decide. There's no part of our life that doesn't come under submission. There's no part of your life, if you're a Christian, that Jesus doesn't point at and say, that's mine. I bought that with the price of my own blood. No part. And if you're like me and you hear that, and you think, oh, I have so much of a gap between where I am and where I want to be. That recognition and desire is a good thing. Not caring is a tragic thing. Can I ask you honestly, as a believer, when you've shared the gospel with people and You've seen a lack of response. Do you find a certain level of discouragement that doesn't motivate you to do it anymore? You ever have in your heart, well, I'm not gonna tell them. I know they don't wanna hear the gospel. The scattering of the seed is indiscriminate over all the soils. Anyone who would listen to the message is to have seeds scattered into their ears. This is a very motivating verse evangel uh, passage evangelistically. This is a very motivating verse in self-examination. But ultimately, it makes me confident that the Lord has his kingdom covered. Can I just sneak a peek for where we'll be in a few weeks? Down to verse 26, Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. That sounds familiar. He goes to bed at night, gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he himself does not know. What is he saying? You be faithful to put the seed out. God will do the growing of the seed, the implanting of the seed. It's just a sweet bookend that we need to be faithful because God is the one who's going to be faithful to his word. It's not up to us to see it grow and implant. It's up to us to scatter it and then God will do the work. You know, do you, are you aware of what soil your heart finds representation in this passage. If you have questions about where you really stand with Jesus, whether you have submitted to his lordship, if you're asking questions that examine your own validity, I wanna beg you, do not, do not leave this building without speaking to someone who can give you an accurate reflection of what you're seeing in the scriptures. This parable 
encourages me, and it also frightens me. It frightens me that we may have, especially the second and the third soil represented by some in our, in our own midst. Please, please turn from partial interest into full out submission to the one who is worthy of all of your care, all of your trust and all of your submission because all of our obedience is for our good and he cares for us.